This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Okay, good afternoon everybody. Uh, my name is Sias Estreisen and uh, the speaker for today, for this session, is Herman Kalmer. So Herman is a risk actuary and he's, he also holds a FRM um, and he heads up the risk and capital management team at QED Actuaries and Consultants where he focuses on extracting value from risk and optimizing his clients' capital programs. He's also currently studying economics um, at London School of Economics. Um, some of his personal interests is cycling, uh, mountaineering, and photography, which uh, he's got some slides on that for you guys as well, just to make sure you, you stay awake. Uh, and the topic for today is liquidity management. So banks are pretty good at managing their liquidity risk, obviously because it's something that's top of mind for them, uh, managing the, the, the mismatch between short-term deposits and long-term lending, and then making sure that they maintain sufficient liquidity buffers. But for insurance companies, we actually focus more on capital management and solvency management and identifying metrics that we can use in our day-to-day -day business decisions. But we spend uh, less or no time on understanding our, our liquidity needs. Um, and this um, might result in excess liquidity that's unnecessary, which could uh, carry, in, carry some opportunity cost. Uh, so Herman's presentation will share a, a framework that you could go back and actually uh, make, make use of in your insurance company. Welcome, everyone. Okay, so thank you, Sias. Um, thank you, everyone. Sorry, I just quickly want to see my notes here. Um, just a quick question before I start. Is the sound okay? Can everybody hear me? Okay, okay, great. Um, so um, before I start, so I'm going to prepared for the presentation, I thought of this French saying um, with some rude local variants, um, but it goes the um, <coughs> assumption is the mother of all faux pas. And faux pas is actually a French term, and it means um, roughly translated as a magnific magnificent um, fumble. And I think that as we, as we start, I think um, just before we get into the slides, uh, I think it's very important to state that whenever we make the statement that a near-liquid investment strategy is a capital preservation strategy, we really need to take cognizance of one of the key assumptions we make when we say that. An assumption is actually that, it's, that we've got a stable economic, um, monetary policy, and inflationary environment. Um, and just to refer back to, so again, so to what Zimbabwe went through recently is that they experienced actually the opposite. So when the currency crashed and that, uh, like a textbook currency crisis, cash was the worst thing they could have been invested in. Um, so we did a couple of projects there where we actually assessed the country risk of, of the country and investing in there. And we, we looked at the currency and... Actually, one of the things we, we saw, so the first thing that happened is the currency collapsed, and then the country, they adopted the U.S. dollar as their currency. And what was interesting, during that time, GDP went through the roof. But then the government started having liquidity problems, and um, 
Then they started selling local bonds and they mixed the currency to be a mixture of US dollars, but also what they call the Zim bond. And um, so we have advice on clients and we looked at a lot of historical um, similar experiences and we went quite far back in history. And I think there was a very similar um, situation somewhere in the 1800s in Europe. So that was when it was gold standard. So basically your currency was directly linked to the amount of gold that your government has in reserves. But this one government didn't really have enough um, gold reserves, so they decided that this broad idea to mix their gold reserves and silver reserves to create a new currency. And there is actually, sorry, my nose is just itching. Um, so there is actually economic law that says your, your bad currency, when it's mixed, will actually chase out the good currency, which will lead to eventual devaluation. And we actually saw that happening in Zimbabwe as well. And I think um, everybody in this room would also agree is that before um, Cyril Ramaphosa took over, we were actually heading towards the same precipice. We're not out of the same woods, but I think everybody of us are much more comfortable. And, and also, um, just thinking about volatile economic experiences. So during the 2008 crisis, I still worked at the regulator then. And... I remember everybody was scared. All the traditional safe investment classes were suddenly not safe anymore. And I remember this one interview on Bloomberg Radio where they um, interviewed a fancy American investment fund managers. And they basically asked them the simple question. Given all this volatility, where should we invest our assets? What's a safe investment class? And without thinking, he immediately shot back and he said, there's no such thing. As soon as something is perceived to be safe, you'll have a huge amount of capital flowing into that investment class. And the result is that you create a bubble and that bubble will correct somewhere, causing losses to investors. And he had a very interesting conclusion and he said, the only good capital preservation strategy is a diversified strategy. And I think part of this presentation will go into the liquidity assessment tools and um, the liquidity risk appetite and all of that. But I think the key thing is that the, the assumption I want to challenge is that cash is a good investment clause. I'm not saying it's a bad one, but we must understand that under some conditions, it's the worst investment clause. Okay, so back to just the presentation. That was quite a long introduction. Um, so for today's presentation, I'm specifically going to focus on how do we manage liquidity risk. Um, and secondly, also is how do we manage the opportunity from liquidity risk? And with that is also the important role that your liquidity risk appetite plays in managing this risk. Where's my clicker? Okay. Okay, so in order for our topic, we're going to ask ourselves three existential liquidity risk management questions. And the first one is, what is liquidity risk? As I said, I think the banks have a good hold over it. They really focus on it. Um, but as insurers, it's, I think it's a bit of a, a strange thing for us that we're not really comfortable with. Secondly is, I think that's the important thing, is should we worry about it? Should we actually dedicate management resources and attention to focus on this, given that that, that is also a limited resource? And the third one is, if we are concerned about it, how should we manage it? And the final part of the slides, we'll look at the benefits of tiering our liquid assets, very similar to the principle of tiering your capital. But we'll also look at what's the key, key role that um, the liquidity risk appetite plays in that. Okay, so for the first section, so I've, I've tried to make it interesting. Um, so in order to understand what liquidity risk is, I'm actually going to use a very real-world example, actually from the mountaineering world. And 
What I'm going to do is look at two very different experiences on the same mountain and try to draw some um, principles that's very similar to how liquidity risk behaves. Okay, so the mountain, that's the subject of this presentation. So that's um, Peak Lenin. It's in Kyrgyzstan. And it's just over 7,100 meters. And it's also one of five 7,000 mountains um, in the former Soviet Union what, that was called the Snow Leopard. So if you'd climb all five, you would actually get the Snow Leopard Award. Um, I do think it's more dangerous than the Seven Summits. More people have perished in the pursuit. Um, and its first successful um, summit was in 1928 by a Soviet-German expedition. And again, this is not really a very technical mountain. Um, so there is a lot of risks associated with high altitude, but the main risk on this mountain is actually the avalanche. So when you climb it, there's one day that you just know every now and then the avalanche comes down and people die and you just sort of accept that risk. Um, and um, the most notable one of these disasters, every couple of years it makes a newspaper, but the no most notable one was in 1990. And there was actually an earthquake in the region which offset a larger than usual avalanche. Um, and in the process, one of the hard camps were actually, that's usually out of the, the road of the, or the way of the avalanche, got completely buried in ice and more than, f more than 40 people perished as a result of that. Okay, so um, last year I attempted the same mountain, um, and attempt is maybe a bit of a strong word, but luckily I at least have an analogy for this presentation. So firstly, so this is a video my Russian guide Katya took a year before I went, and she was actually in the IRA camp when this avalanche came down. So just not to upset any of you, I just quickly want to tell you, so first thing to look at is, do you see those little black dots there below the avalanche? Those are actually climbers. The second thing I want to say is before I play the video is, um, just to keep all of you here, is that miraculously they all survived. I don't know how that happened, but it happened. So let's look at just a short video. I did ask them to mute the sound because I think there's some guy shouting in Russian. <laughs> I can think of a little poor guy here at the end also running for his life. I can't imagine what that went through his mind. Okay, so let's go a year later to my misadventure. Um, I think misadventure is the right word. And it was literally a misadventure from the start. So after spending weeks planning, you can see the gear there. It's literally you've got lists and lists. Once you're there, you can't replace anything. So it was quite stressful just getting my bags packed. And so from Johannesburg, I set off to Kyrgyzstan. And I left the Friday, arrived only the Sunday. Very excited, but then I saw this commotion um, at the airport, and my guide actually broke the news that my, all my gear was stuck in customs at Moscow. And it would actually take a week for them to get the baggage to me, because it would have to fly to Tajikistan and then to Kyrgyzstan, and that's actually, I think one of those flights only goes once a week. Luckily, the first week, you're actually below the heavy snow line, snow line, so you can still get away with basic gear. So I went to that local Koji market in Osh, replaced underwear, everything, clothing, um, basic hiking gear. Gotcha, my good guide assisted me in the process. And the first week, I looked like a soldier. So very excited, okay, I'm managing this risk. But from there, things just went worse. Um, on the way to that advanced base camp, uh, I dropped my fancy camera on its lens, shattered the lens. My only pair of army pants tore in the middle. Um, so for a week, it was quite an awkward experience just going to the communal tent to get food. And on one of the, so this part I'll filter a bit more. Um, so on one of the days where we acclimatized, so luckily I had my snow boots with me, so I could still join him for that. So we acclimatized, but I got food poisoning on one of the slopes. 
And the thing is, there's a queue of people behind you and you can literally go nowhere. I think that was one of the most humbling experiences of my life. Um, and all I can say is that my poor Russian guide, Katya, again, had to assist me. And I think we're both scarred for life. Um, <laughs> and I'm definitely not visiting Russia anytime soon. So there you can see in the yellow tent, um, that's where I spent the next week while the rest of the guys were acclimatizing, just resting, getting fluids back in my body. And luckily a day before we were supposed to go up to the next, um, the higher camp, my luggage arrived, so very happy. But then also the food poisoning returned with high fever. And by the time that the camp doctor saw me, he was so worried, he said, I need to get off this mountain immediately. Luckily, this guy on the horse, they, they usually take the heavier gear to the higher camp. So they just arrived and they said they could take me down. So four hours later on the scariest horse ride of my life, um, that was probably the most exciting part of the whole trip. Um, I arrived even more dehydrated in base camp, spent the night in the, in the hospital yellow tent, two injections in the backside and a drip. Um, and as I saw my life flashing in front of me, the only thing I could think of is that this would make a great liquidity risk management <laughs> analogy. I guess I've got a point. So I think you're all wondering, okay, what is the point of this? Um, so mountaineers, they use a very simple classification framework when they look at risk. And the first one is, it's quite simple, I like it. Risk is anything that can kill you in the mountains. And then they subdivide that into two other subcategories. Uh, so their risk taxonomy have objective hazards. And that's basically anything in your environment that everybody is exposed to can kill you. And that includes avalanches, we saw that, rock falls, lightning. So that's just your environment. So irrespective of how fit or good you are, you can be killed by these things. And I think the first example is a good example of that. The second one is subjective hazard. So that's irrespective of the other mountain, other guys on the mountain. That's a risk that's specific to you. I was extremely unlucky, or maybe in retrospect, I was lucky. Um, but everything that happened to me only happened to me. Most of my team still made it to the summit. They didn't experience the same thing. And that's a subjective hazard. So my point is, again, a long analogy, is liquidity risk behaves in a very similar manner. And why am I saying this? As, let's quickly look at the definition of liquidity risk. So um, please forgive me for just reading this definition, but it's basically the risk of exposure to the loss in the event that insufficient liquid assets are available in your company to meet cash flow requirements when they are due, or that assets may be available, but only at excessive cost. So again, if we subdivide this using our taxonomy, the first one is funding liquidity risk. So that's liquidity issues that are specific to your company, to your bank or your insurer, irrespective of what happens in the company. The second one is market liquidity risk. And this is usually where most of the, the liquidity risk tools focus. And, and again, what this says, it's, difficult, it's a difficulty in, in selling assets at the true value because of an inadequate market depth, breadth, or a market disruption. So 2008 was a market liquidity risk event. So now let's quickly look at the principles. So once we, so in order to understand the risk and to manage it appropriately, we first want to understand how it operates in our company. So let's try to get into the mind of liquidity risk. So the first principle, it, it's not your fault but it's still your problem. Okay, sometimes it is your fault. And I think the main point we've established this is sometimes you can do everything right, you can have a very sound business, but you might have liquidity issues because of the environment that you're working in. The second one is, and banks know this especially, is you've got more liquidity than you need until you don't. So unfortunately, only under stress scenarios do you really realize if you've got adequate liquidity. 
And very important one is that too much liquidity risk can kill you quickly. Too little liquidity risk will kill you slowly. And the banks also realize this. Um, the fourth one is that liquidity risk is operational and consequential. And again, this is, uh, we do want to manage liquidity risk where it, op where it originates in the organization. But sometimes you just want to assume that liquidity risk event has happened and then just manage the consequences. But again, we'll get back to that. Regulation is necessary but not sufficient. And scenario analysis is the language of liquidity. Any liquidity assessment needs to be occur under stressed conditions. Um, and that's because liquidity risk materializes very quickly. Most other risks you can actually see coming from a distance. Liquidity risk, you, you don't realize it's there until it is there. Um, the seventh one is actually also quite interesting, is that liquidity risk nets zero for the system as all. And basically what that means is in a liquidity crisis event is that if, one, if, if this, this amount of liquidity risk in the system, for me to reduce my liquidity risk, I need to increase my liquidity. That means somebody else needs to reduce their liquidity risk and suddenly they sit with the liquidity risk. So I haven't reduced it, I've just transferred it to somebody else. Another interesting one is that cash sources and uses are, fun are fungible. And basically what that means is that every extra rand that you get into your business from a liquidity point of view is equal to a rand that you save on expenses. Very simple. Confidence is the lifeblood of liquidity. Banks love to say that you don't have liquidity risk until the market thinks that you have liquidity risk. And then you have a liquidity risk. And liquidity risk is heterogeneous, and that's just a fancy way to talk to our definition that you can subdivide into different types and manage that separately. Okay, so that's our... Our first question is, what is liquidity risk? And I think now the important one is, should we worry about it? Um, so let's quickly look at the banking system. So I'm just going to, can you hear me if I stand here, or is the sound not? Okay. Just try to see my slides there. Um, so let's look at liquidity risk in the banking system. So one of the assumptions is banks have more liquidity risk than insurers. That still holds true. The question is just how much liquidity risk do we have? So something very interesting happens in the banking system, and the former governor of the Bank of England, he called it financial alchemy or risk alchemy. And he basically says that the banking system is like a huge Ponzi scheme. And why he says that is something happens. So what we do is every month we take our savings, short-term liquid low-risk assets, put it in a bank, um, and then something very interesting happens in the bank, and that's what he calls a process of risk alchemy. And once our cash goes into the bank, once it goes out of the bank, it looks very differently. Some transformation has happened. So suddenly that same cash, when it goes back into the market, it now is a long-term illiquid high-risk asset in the forms of loans to businesses, mortgages, cars, study loans, all of that. But a very important principle is, and I saw this, so one of my friends is a chemical engineer, and he explained this principle to me, is... A principle of transformation and transference when you look at energy. And basically, the principle is that you can't create or destroy energy. You can only transform it or transfer it. So again, with this, this, this risk alchemy that happens in the business, the risk is still there, but it's now been transformed into liqui additional liquidity risk in the bank that wasn't there previously. But it's also not just transferred to the rest of the bank. It's also transferred to the rest of the financial industry. Um, other things that also makes the banking system a bit more complex or complicated is also just the increased complexity of products. 
the increased complexity of organizations. I think we all know that we've got a lot of, lot of, lot of large insurance companies with banks in the group or the other way around. So, so increasingly our financial institution is more connected and it's also our contagion risk. That's a problem if there's a run on the, in one bank, you, you can spook the whole market and suddenly your whole banking system is in trouble. And that's why the Reserve Bank, one of its roles is to act as the lender of last resort. Um, but we'll cover that now. Let's quickly look at just at liquidity risk in, in the insurance industry. So let's look at traditional insurers. Um, so the first one, insurance companies are more stable. And that's because premiums are received in advance. And payments are usually ma only made if a contingent event actually occurs. And in most cases, earned premiums cannot be recouped. And also, leverage to enhance returns is not practiced in the insurance industry. So um, I know with the previous act, I don't know what the current act says on it, solo insurers weren't allowed to use leverage to enhance their returns. Okay, so let's quickly compare general insurers to life insurers. So for general insurance, cover is mostly annual. And the reality is a large proportion of the assets are actually in highly liquid assets, and it's a good match for cash flows. So where does liquidity risk come from for our general insurers? Um, the first one is from a catastrophe event. I think if any catastrophe event happens and you don't have adequate reinsurance, that could easily sink any general insurance company. Um, large single losses and a concentration of investments. So again, let's use the example of our conservative general insurer. All their cash is in two banks in South Africa. If there's a run on those two banks, then suddenly the liquidity issue in the banking system is their liquidity issue as well. And this is usually just managed via reinsurance and risk of transfer, but then there's a risk of potential default of our reinsurers. So life insurance cover is mostly long-term, longer time horizon, low proportion of liquid assets, and that's mainly because of the requirement to do ALM activities. And liquidity risk for our life insurers mainly arise from, I think, the ease at which policies can be surrendered um, in terms of a mass lapse, and a mass lapse um, from a reputational risk, um, and also your investment activities, I think we've covered this and also the dependency on the reinsurance industry. If there's a failure in the reinsurance industry, uh, there's a lot of additional risk in our insurance industry as all. Well. And that just shows that I think the quite critical part that reinsurers play in our industry. And again, just the concentration of investments. So recent developments in the insurance industry is that there is increased complexity of our group structures. Um, as I said, suddenly in the same group there's banks and insurance companies. Um, and also leverage is used at a group level. So it's public information. A lot, of, a lot of the large insurance groups, you would actually see that they state in the financial returns that they've raised debt capital to fund further expansion. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just it's additional risk um, from the additional return. In 2008, we saw how dangerous credit risk insurance is actually. And important point is also our exposure to the external environment. So this, the, the title here is that no insurer is an island. And I think the main thing is the days of us just worrying about what goes on in our own businesses are over. Each one of us in our companies, we are some way exposed to the banking system, either through our investment activities or through affiliation through um, group investments, um, our exposure to the reinsurance industry. Um, so I'm not saying the reinsurance industry is creating risk. I think they are taking a lot of the risk away, but that, that also says how important it is that they are quite stable. 
And I've spoke, just spoken about our exposure to the monetary policy and the exchange rate. That is the foundation on which the whole economy works. You can do everything right, but once you've got issues there, then the whole economy suffers. Um, other events, I think just thinking a bit more out of the box that could, that could generate liquidity risk is that of political instability. Um, so again, we can see in Venezuela, where currently, I think they mentioned yesterday, I can't remember where I read it, is that currently the price of a Big Mac is the same as a year's um, salary. And that's just, I'm sure there's a lot of sound businesses there, but political risk causes economic risk. Um, and a second one is also another financial crisis or a prolonged financial depression. So the one is immediate shock, the other one will be a long-term stress on your expenses, etc. And also something that I think that I'm getting worried about more and more is just a, a global act of cyber war. I think in 2008 we saw that if one company, a significant financial institution, goes under, it, it puts the whole system at risk. And usually if you read um, some history about e economics and warfare is that usually economic warfare precedes actual warfare. And if the big powers start getting itchy for a fight, it's going to start with cyber warfare. And through one except um, um, good cyber attack that can actually put the whole economy of one country at risk. And also another um, scenario is that the basement of the US dollar as a global reserve currency. For us, this is unthinkable. We just think the way the global currency exchange rate system works is just going to carry on into perpetuity. But I think we sometimes forget that the way things currently work is actually quite young. Up until the Vietnam War, the global currency was still, the US dollar was actually still pegged to the rand, oh, to gold, not to the rand. Um, and with Nixon, he realized he needed to fund his, his expensive war in Vietnam, so he decoupled, and that gave birth to what we know today as the fiat currency system. But the problem is America isn't playing fair anymore. So currently with quantitative easing, or as we like to call it in South Africa, I think quantity easing, that's actually just a fancy way to print money and, and push liquidity into the system. And what our economists say is that that's implicit default on the owners of the assets. And the other big players are getting fed up with the US um, economy. Also their debt to, to GDP ratio is extremely high and it can take one catastrophe crisis to, for the other powers to say, okay, we're over this. And what would happen then is again, in the history of mankind, there's been a lot of shocks but we do need to be able to withstand that shock while the rebasement happens. And the key message of the slide is that a significant portion of our liquidity risk actually emerges outside of our companies, um, if not most. But again, that depends on the company. Some companies do have some serious liquidity risk issues, but they usually have other bigger issues if it comes to that. So even after this, if the regulators are concerned if we're not concerned, um, the reality is the re regulators are still concerned. Um, sorry, can you just give me the time there? So, okay, thank you. So even if we're not concerned, our regulators are concerned. Um, and the reality is that 2008 crisis was mainly viewed as a liquidity crisis. And what's the interesting thing is, until then, prudential regulation was focused on solvency. Even Basel, Basel III was introduced after that. Even Basel II didn't really have liquidity measures in that. And that's the major risk for banks, not really solvency. Um, and what the regulators realized is that liquidity crisis actually threaten your going concern of institutions, but also the stability of the entire financial system. 
And for us in the insurance industry, liquidity risk is still one of the large known unknowns. Um, and also recently the regulator did system-wide stress testing and the interesting conclusion on the insurance industry was that, um, so Suzette still said, um, spoke at one of the ERM seminars and she said what they realized is that they're quite comfortable with the solvency of the overall industry. What they are concerned about is the overall liquidity risk in the industry. Unfortunately, I didn't see the, the actual calculations and how they came to that, but at least we can say that that is one of the things that the regulator is focused on. As I said, our reserve banks, the role they play is lender of last resort. They mo monitor aggregate liquidity risk in the system. Um, and also BIS um, Basel, they introduced liquidity requirements under Basel III only after 2008. FSA, our, our UK regulator, which very much influences what we do in South Africa, is they've got a liquidity risk framework which looks at all these things, the governance requirements and the measurement requirements. Um, and also what was interesting is the regulator said, um, let's expand the scope of the ORSA. So whether ORSA in the past asked a simple question, given our strategy and our risk profile, do we have adequate capital? They've changed that to ask, given our strategy and risk profile, do we have adequate capital and liquidity in the firm? So now as part of the ORSA process, we are actually forced to look at liquidity. Um, Specific to the SA Prudential Authority, um, they've got a dedicated liquidity risk assessment division. They do industry-wide stress testing. They've introduced the sh liquidity shortfall measure for insurance companies, and they also have liquidity framework requirements. Okay, so that's so we've answered our three exist or our two existential questions. The last one is, how should we manage liquidity risk in our organisations? So again, I think that the main point I want to make in the slide is when, when we start with the risk identification, it's basically as actuaries and risk managers, we, we rely on two main processes. So the first one is the risk and control self-assessment process. So the first time I heard it, I didn't even know what it was meant by it, but that's just a, the fancy way to say the process the risk guys use to get a risk register for the company. So that very much focuses on operational risks and specifically operational risks as they relate to liquidity. And the second one is cash flow analysis. So that's where, where we more will focus on today and where most of the techniques actually focus on. And just on that is that our RCSA or our risk register process, uh, that focuses on managing the liquidity and this, oh, the likelihood and the severity of liquidity risk. So it wants to minimize that. Cash flow analysis says, given that there's all these external factors as well, we can't anticipate all everything and everything is not in our controls. Let's assume a scenario has occurred and now we actually want to manage the consequences. Okay, so I think the key thing is when we say with cash flow analysis is that actually the adequacy, so what this does is it assesses the adequacy of liquid assets currently available. So if you think of your timeline, so this time zero, so that's where we measure liquid assets, but then we project our cash flows over a 12 month period. And the question we're asking is the available liquid assets or near liquid assets we have available today, is that adequate to, where's my... Okay, um, is anybody can maybe assist me with uh, my standing on a cable? Okay, so just while we wait, I'll just speak to cash flow analysis. Luckily, I can still see my slides. Um, so as I said, it's the... Okay, that's not mine. <coughs> um, so as I said, think of a timeline. 
Cash flow analysis considers liquidity risk over the short term, specifically a 12-month projection period. And that's a key risk with the ALM process. Um, and, and also, the second thing is we measure available liquid assets today. And that's also with the liquidity shortfall regulator of the liquidity shortfall indicator of the regulator. That's actually quite a simple formula, and they use the same principle. They say, they take a simple formula, say liquid, liquid, our liquid assets minus our funding requirements over the next 12 months. If that's um, positive, you've got a surplus. If it's less than zero, then you've got a deficit. Is it okay if I speak on? So you, you um, I don't think we really have a choice. Um, so let's quickly um, just talk about the liquidity coverage ratio. So for me, one of the key, key shortfalls of the liquidity shortfall indicator is with liquidity measures, I don't like nominal amounts to measure risk. Because again, that amount can change quite a lot, but you still need a ratio to actually assess the risk. So I think the liquidity shortfall indicator was definitely a step in the right direction. I haven't seen anything. So we work with regulators in a lot of jurisdictions, and, um, and I haven't seen this really for other insurance industries or insurance regulators. So it's definitely a step in the right direction. But what I would do is I would take this measure and I would decompose this in a liquidity coverage ratio. And again, um, if we talk about stress testing of our cash flow requirements is that you want to calculate your LCR for your base case, for your regulatory case, but you also want to calculate the LCR under various stress conditions. And that's where you actually apply stress conditions or, or stresses to the actual projected cash flow requirements. Um, guys, it's still going to take a while. Just Okay, so I'll just keep on going on. So you won't see the formula, but at least I can explain it. So, yeah. <laughs> um, Sorry, so just back to the formula. So again, I'll just spend some more time explaining our wonderful ratio. So in short, our liquidity coverage ratio, is that good news? Not yet. Uh, what it does is it measures the amount of available liquid assets we have today, and it says how many times that, uh, does that cover our expected liquidity strain over the next year. If your ratio exceeds one, it's a good thing. If it's below one, then you don't have adequate liquid assets available. Let's just give them a couple of minutes. I've lost my slides as well now. I think that's a brilliant idea. <clears throat> Actually, I have to talk long enough that I can avoid the questions, but uh, <laughs> that's fine. Um, I still see it here, but let's just wait. So any questions? Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, since you started the Zimbabwean business, how do you really manage the liquidity? When uh, putting the money in cash, it's going to lose value very quickly. Yes. So you're caught in the circle where the three major asset classes are all almost no good in terms of uh, the liquidity story. So since you've studied it from the outside, I just want to hear, and I put it like you're thinking of a few things, you can also one or two things that you can see that. 
So, yeah, uh, that's a very good question, but also a very difficult question. And I must be honest, there's no clear solution for that. Um, and again, it's having exposure to our diver diversified asset classes, but the reality is if the currency is under strain, the whole economy is under strain. So I think Zimbabwe is a more extreme scenario. I do believe that the, the, the monetary environment is going to stabilize at some point. And once that happens, and also when the monetary environment stabilized during the U.S. dollar um, period is that the GDP growth during that period was of the highest in the region. So what I can say is I think there is going to be a lot of catch-up, but until then, it's, it is just a difficult environment. So uh, sorry if I can't give you an answer. And, and I think, so we also see it with a lot of our other African clients is that um, it's not as severe, but in some countries, the inflation is 12%, um, returns are very high, and for them, it's the same issue is in the beginning when I saw the balance sheets and I saw these huge property investments, I thought this doesn't make sense from a liquidity point of view. But now, years later, just understanding some of the complications, I do understand that even in those environments, just having everything in cash that is liquid within, uh, with the uh, um, inflation of 10%, every eight seven years your real value is halved. Okay, so it's back. Um, sorry that I couldn't give you a, a better answer. Um, okay. Okay, um, thank you for your help, guys. So I'll just um, run through. We don't have to watch that again. Okay, so we've covered that, and this is the slide where I lost you. Um, guys, thanks for your help, um, and thank you for your patience. Um, so this is our liquidity shortfall indicator. So I've explained available liquid assets today minus our funding requirements over the next 12 months and you allow for stress testing. I like to decompose it into a ratio as I explained. So again, the same inputs, but now your available liquid assets is at the top and your funding requirement is at the bottom. Okay, so let's get back to our LCR. So the main inputs in our formula, and this is the main thing we're gonna focus on today, is the main inputs is firstly our available liquid assets, and that's what we call our liquidity buffer. And the question is, what should we include in our liquidity buffer? And your liquidity buffer is just basically the amount of liquid assets that the company pledges to act as a buffer for liquidity events, um, under expected and um, future strain scenarios. But the key question is, um, so I still have 20 minutes left, is that correct? Okay, I'll try to manage my time here. Um, so the key thing is, so what do we include in our liquidity buffer? Okay, one point, I think we're all gonna get this in the exam, is cash. But the other question is, what about bonds and equities in our liquidity buffer? And for me, the key thing is, yes, you can add it to your liquidity buffer. The key thing is, you must just allow for a conservative haircut. And the approach we take is that haircut actually reflects the stress scenarios. What do we expect our equities and our bonds to be worth under a, okay, we've got a problem again. Am, is it a wiring issue or? Okay, I think I'll just stand very still. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, I'll just, so, um, and the thing is, so what you want to do is you also want to allow for these assets after a conservative haircut. And that's just, the haircut reflects what is the asset going to be worth in a 2008 environment where we have to sell it. 
So in that case, our current equity is let's take 40% off and 60% of that we can add to our liquidity buffer. So now let's look at the more tricky part, is the funding requirements. And again, we look at the formulas, it looks complicated, but once you see the model, it's really not that complicated. Uh, it's more understanding the process. Um, so what is the expected funding requirements, the denominator in our, in our formula? And it, it basically it refers to the expected, expected funding requirements over the projected period. So what is our expected cash inflows and cash outflows over the next 12 months? And the process we use to assess our funding requirements is a liquidity gap analysis. The first thing we do is we populate a funding, funding matrix. Um, and then also we, we include the details of funding requirements for various maturities and on a cumulative basis for each period over the next 12 months. And then we construct, and it's basically constructed with our asset and liability cash flows, but also the cash flows that's not on our, our off-balance sheet items because you, you want to see, see your cash flow position. And then you calculate a net funding gap by subtracting all of these. And that's basically based on your anticipated mismatch for each period. So I like examples. So this is just um, a simple simplification of the funding matrix. So what do we do? Top few lines, we populate our total cash inflows. And then after that, we populate our total cash outflows over the next 12 months. And then what we do is we get a funding requirement for each period. So at time zero, month one, month two, month 12. And this is, and we also get a total funding requirement that we can use in our liquidity coverage ratio calculation. And that's what your funding gap profile would look like. So for each month you would see cash inflows, cash outflows, and your net position. And then after we've calculated this, now we want to include the liquid assets into the formula. And and basically what we do is we now plot our available liquid assets at time zero according to the date of their maturity. So some things cash doesn't mature, so cash you just plop in at time zero. Various bonds would mature over the next 12 months, so those maturity dates you actually want to plot here. And now for each maturity we'll actually get a net funding requirement. But what we also now need to do is we need to go populate our stressed funding matrix. So we've done this for the base case, but we want a funding matrix for all of our stress scenarios. And basically what we do, a key thing is we actually apply our stresses to our projected cash flows, not to our time zero liquidity pool. And the important point is that we already allow implicitly for stresses in our liquidity pool or liquidity buffer through the haircuts. But what I would recommend is a specific stress that stresses your liquidity pool um, separately from the projected cash flow stresses. Um, and that, so let's just quickly look at some of the key measures after we've gone through this process that we can extract from our tools. So the first one is we get a liquidity coverage ratio profile, and that just shows the liquidity coverage ratio under each stress. And the, the dotted blue lines, that's just your liquidity risk appetite. What is interesting, there's not just the lower um, liquidity risk appetite, there's also, we also have an upper limit. And it speaks to the one side, speaks to managing the risks, so not going illiquid and threatening our going concern. The other side is actually making sure that we don't have dormant liquid assets in the organization. And we'll get back to that, importance of that now. Survival horizon is quite an important one. So that says, assuming we realize we don't have enough liquid assets, according to our LCR ratio, how many months or weeks do we have available to fix that problem? So how quickly will our liquidity, our liquid assets run dry? So for instance, in 2008, those, a lot of those banks, they literally realized they had a couple of days to sort out their liquidity issues. In some other case, you'd realize, okay, my LCR isn't great, but I've got 11 months to fix that. 
So it basically speaks to the urgency of fixing your liquidity problems. And again, you can also get a profile for your liquidity shortfall indicator um, for each stress. So now let's quickly look at the benefits of tiering liquid assets. So I'm just looking at the time. And also just come to, I think, a simplified way to derive a liquidity risk appetite. So we've quantified our liquidity buffer, um, but tiering is now required, firstly, to calculate our required versus our excess liquidity. Um, and that also helps us to assess the cost and the opportunity cost of our dormant liquidity. Um, thirdly, it also informs the optimal asset composition of the liquidity buffer. And we can also derive our liquidity risk appetite, or as, um, as I said here, is that it's actually a key input into the process. And it also informs us, do we need a liquidity injection in our company? Or the opposite, can we actually afford to, to, to take some of our liquid assets and invest it in riskier um, investment classes? So the first one is, um, so let's, let's get to our expected liquidity requirements. So again, that block is our liquidity buffer. So the first component is we've calculated our expected liquidity requirement using the cash flow analysis. After that, we've calculated additional liquidity requirements under each one of the stress scenarios. And that's just your overall liquidity requirement. So for each stress, we'll have a liquidity requirement and excess liquidity. But the reality is up to this point, We've performed the exercise for each scenario, but we still need is a consolidated view. And firstly, to, to determine the need and size of our liquidity injections. Um, and secondly, to assess the size and impact of our dormant liquid assets or our lazy liquidity. And thirdly, to assess the optimal liquid assets for liquidity buffer. So how do we get these individual stressed views and base views and regulatory view into a consolidated view? And that is where our liquidity risk appetite comes in. So let's look at a typical liquidity risk appetite statement for insurance companies. So let's look at it qualitatively first. So here we have ABC Insurer, and what they're saying is the insurer should have adequate liquidity to meet its liquidity requirements under all stress scenarios. Okay, that sounds great, but as actuaries, we want numbers. So how do we get to that qualitative statement to a quantitative statement? And what we use is, again, the LCR, and also something we've developed is our generalized LCR, which I'll cover now. And by understanding those metrics, we can actually have quantitative RAS. So again, a recap of our LCR, the number of times our available liquid assets or our liquidity buffer can cover our expected cash flow strain over the next 12 months. So what we've developed here is what we call the generalized liquidity coverage ratio. And that's, it looks complicated, but it's actually quite a simple formula. It just measures the, the LCR, the minimum LCR under all conditions. So then we take all our stressed LCRs, we allow for the regulator LCR, our expected LCR, and the minimum one triggers this, this formula, and that's our GLCR. And basically what this helps us is now we've got a quantitative statement. And basically what we can say to the board is we want to ensure that our GLCR is greater than one. And again, that's just, just to say it in a simpler way. We want to make sure that we've got enough liquid assets to ensure that our LCR is greater than one under all stress scenarios. So that basically just says the, the same thing, but having a simple measure just simplifies it a bit. Okay, so, and as I said, is our liquidity risk appetite. Now it's helped us to inform our overall liquidity requirements. 
Um, and basically, now that we have a consolidated view, is that if our liquidity requirement is less than our actual liquidity buffer or liquidity pool, we've got excess liquidity. On the other hand, if our liquidity requirement exceeds our liquidity buffer, um, we actually have a liquidity shortfall, and that's where we need to take some management actions. And this informs the liquidity injection, and the size of that liquidity injection is quite simply the amount of liquid assets we need to bring into the organization to bring our GLCR up to one. So under this measure, your GLCR will be below one. But very important is, so uh, we're not just about managing risk, we also wanna ensure that we optimize opportunity. Um, and the first thing is that our excess liquidity now needs to be assessed for the cost of dormant liquidity. So let's use a simple illustration. So we're almost at the end of the presentation and um, then we'll have some time for questions. So, um, so I think, um, so when we, let's assume we've got a South African insurer, they've invested all their excess liquid assets, 100 million rand in cash. So what is our expected earnings from investing cash after 10 years? Very safe investment strategy. That's exactly 100 million. But the question we should be asking is, what is the expected real earnings and what is the opportunity cost? So again, this example, we see they've taken a conservative approach and as a result, they have 100 million rand in the bank. So what was the real cost of this investment? So I did a back of the envelope calculation. I saw that the average inflation rate was around 5.5% over the last decade. For me, it feels a bit um, understated, but at least for this example, we can see that that equates to total inflation of 72%. And that means the real value of our 100 million rand investments is 58 million rand. So we've destroyed 42 million rand of real value. And again, as I said, in our other African countries where inflation is much higher, this real value is, uh, is much lower. So let's look at the opportunity cost. So again, the back of the envelope calculation is I looked at the JSE performance over the last 10 years and was about an average 11% year on year. Um, what it does however include is a lot of the, the correction in the markets after the 2008 crash. But this company, if they've invested all of that excess liquidity that they don't need into, this, um, into the JSE all share index, they would have had an annual return of close to 11% and they would have earned 278%. And the opportunity cost is 108 million rand. And the interesting thing is, is, the conclusion from our illustration is that investing in cash, what we think is conservative, is it's got a zero nominal cost, but it's got a material real cost, but an even larger opportunity cost. And just speaking to our liquidity file pass again, is that a near liquid investment strategy does not equate to a capital preservation strategy under stress scenarios. If, again, I'm just going to click back. I don't know if that's safe to do that. Um, let's compare these two companies. So let's say the red company, um, they were more aggressive. Um, our, what do you call that color? I'm not sure, brown. Um, they were more conservative. But let's say there's a, a adverse economic scenario now. The, which company has a better solvency position to withstand the risk event? It's actually that our company was smarter in, in using their liquidity risk. Okay, so now just the final part of the presentation, so I do want to conclude and allow for some, some questions, is 
our tiering, our area liquid asset types is actually informed by this exercise. So how do we allocate the mixture of cash, bonds, and equities in our liquidity buffer? So the first one is our expected liquidity re requirement. So that's our expected cash outflows over the next year. If we know we're going to make a huge, huge investment, we want to have enough cash for that. And then for the stress liquidity requirements, we want the, our liquid assets that should be available for stress conditions. It's not guaranteed that it's going to happen. But for this, we can use a mixture of bonds and equities. And the third part is our excess liquidity. We actually don't want any cash in that because of the cost of opportunity and real cost of having too much cash in our organization. And excluding cash from our, from our um, liquidity buffer actually minimizes the cost of liquidity. And alternatively, um, our excess liquidity can be returned to shareholders. And again, I know there's a lot of capital implications, but, but that is things we should be thinking about. Do we want to sit on hordes of cash in our organizations considering um, all these other factors? So again, I can summarize my slides here. But for me, the key takeaway is answering our second existential question is, so should we be concerned about liquidity risk? And my answer is yes. Because firstly, when we fly blindly in terms of our liquidity risk, firstly, and this is where the regulator comes in, is too much liquidity risk can actually threaten our going concern. But the second point is, and I think that's where all the shareholders should, or where our shareholders are more concerned, is that excessive cost of liquidity really has a very expensive price for the shareholders of the organization. And as we said, one of the, the um, principles is that too much liquidity risk can kill you quickly. Too little liquidity risk can actually deteriorate your financial position over the period. And I think that's especially true in Africa. <clears throat> so sorry just for the jumping around of the slides, uh, but there are some time for questions. Okay. Yes, thank you. I'd appreciate the mic. Yeah, um, so, first of all, thank you, Martin. Um, I think that's very useful, and it's a high time coming, um, a long time coming. Um, it's, it's certainly an aspect of risk, certainly for insurers, that I don't think has uh, been afforded the attention it, it deserves. Um, maybe I missed something, but I, I just want to go back to your GLCR formula. If you're prepared to risk jumping back into your slides. I'll, I'll um, try. It, it looked like you're basically using the the GLCR is essentially the minimum of the LCRs, right? Yes. Uh, which I think I understand. I think the, the part that I just want to check, and maybe I missed it, is uh, does that not implicitly assume independence of your liquidity risk events? Yes. Um, sorry, are you... Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so shouldn't you allow for any potential correlation of those events? So, and, and that's actually what the regulator does, is they allow for the correlation of those events, but... Standard market practice, and that's how the banks approach it, they, because liquidity risk is assessed over a short-term period, they actually want to assess whether they've got adequate liquid assets for each individual scenario. The problem is if you allow for the correlation, and we've seen this from actual examples, is that you end up with a LCR or a, a liquidity requirement that is able to withstand the diversified event in the next year, but won't be able to withstand any of those events individually. So, yeah, you're absolutely correct. 
Okay, any, any other questions or comments? I would appreciate comments as well. Hi, um, I work at the Potential Authority, um, and I just want to hear your thoughts on the reporting around liquidity risk. Um, so as you mentioned, we have a dedicated um, team that looks at liquidity yes. risk for insurers, but they have a very strong background in banking. And the, the experience I think they've had there is that there's a lot of dynamic reporting from banks to the regulator, which we don't have in insurers. So I think currently the most frequent is the quarterly reports that insurers yes. do. But even there, I don't think it's captured quite extensively as the annual reports, which are less frequent. So what are your thoughts around that without giving the regulator too much work? Um, so specifically on the reporting of liquidity risk for, um, for insurers. So I think the reality is, and I think the approach we take is that the frequency of reporting should also reflect the materiality of the risk. For banks, this is a major risk. And if the banks have liquidity issues, they can quite easily take the whole industry around them. So I'm, I'm all for frequent reporting. I know some, um, I don't know how often it is, but it does make sense for the banks to report frequently. For insurers, I think quarterly is fine. It's just having conf confidence around the adequacy of that reporting. And I think where insurance companies do have issue, then you would you would require uh, more frequent reporting. But usually when insurance uh, insurer has liquidity issues, there's a lot of other issues as well that they need to report on. So I, I think that's just my view, but I could be could be wrong. Okay, but yeah, thanks for, for sharing. Um, um, I'm sorry, I just want to... I guess there you yeah, are. No sorry. problem. Um, there might be a bit of more throwaway comment that you made about uh, um, we now more using the dollar standard than the um, gold standard, um, especially when it comes to the well, with currency. A while ago, I read a um, book at um, the new case for gold that actually ended up um, making a statement, and I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. If the dollar isn't based on gold, then what is it based on? Is it basically worth the paper it's, um, it's printed on, or how um, how do they then um, um, how are they able to base it on something? Um, I'll try to answer that question, but if I if I can mess it completely, um, please have grace for me. Um, so I thought of a lot about this. Is that you had the gold standard, and then you had the fiat currency, and a fiat currency is basically what backs that is the credibility of your government. So basically, what backs the the and I could be wrong, um, what backs the US dollar is the goods that back the American economy. But the problem is if they print a lot of money, suddenly those goods back double the amount of dollars. And that's why you would see, I think in other countries, you would actually see the, the value of that currency offering. So uh, it's, I would say it's the, the, the goods that back it, or your GDP. Okay. Um, sorry, just two quick questions on your right. Oh, sorry. Uh, um, <laughs> so uh, my first question is on your... So you did touch on the shortfall in liquidity and how you will need to bring it back to the level that you want it. Now, um, in situations of like insurance companies where, for example, like you spoke of contingent events, yes. where you might, you know, you don't... Like you know your um, cash flows, but not with high certainty. What do you then do in a situation where, say, today you've kind of brought it back to the one that you want, and then you find out that next week it's back? So how frequent should you do that? Does that mean that you need to now go back to your mandates or, you know, whatever commitments you have to kind of change um, your levels? Or should you give yourself 
should you allow yourself time to kind of see where it goes? That's my first question. Um, and then my second question is on offshore equities and bonds. What have you seen being done in the industry in terms of, um, you know, putting them as your liquid assets? What are kind of like the haircuts there or do people just not put them through or kind of what's been the practice? Okay, so, so I think on your, your first question is getting it back to, to the one is, again, it dep depends on how conservative your buffer is, but if, if it is a crisis and the indicator, I think that's important here, if it says that you've got 12 months to fix this liquidity issue, then you don't need to suddenly sell all your property and the, the CEO's vehicles and holiday home to get cash. You've got time to fix that. So I think survival horizon is the, the first thing. Uh, I think the second thing, to be honest, I haven't really seen, um, I think, foreign assets being, being included in that. But I think just thinking is I would allow for a reduction similar to, I, I think in the SCR it's 40% drop in equities, but also allowing for that currency risk. Because again, there's a lot of volatility and the RAND volatility unfortunately goes both ways. So I wouldn't say it's a great thing to include, but um, I, I could be wrong. Okay. Any, sorry. Uh, there's one more. I think it's the last one. Hello. Hi, thanks for the presentation. Uh, hopefully a quick one. Um, so I can appreciate the, the approaches you set out here make sense for solo insurers and banks. You know, it's quite easy to manage on a solo basis, but things get you know, inherently more complicated when you look at complex insurance groups and bank groups or financial conglomerates. Um, I guess with the financial conglomerate regulation coming, um, and the idea there is it's supposed to look at things like systemic risk and contagion risk across the entities within a group, uh, we know that liquidity risk emanates through those risk categories. I wanted to get your thoughts. Are you expecting some, some level of sophisticated liquidity capital that we can uh, expect to come out of that regulation, or do you think it's going to be a something, as simple as like a capital add-on? Um, so I th I'm not sure. So I really don't know what the regulator's um, expectation is on that. So I see the lady shaking her head. Um, so, so I can't speak on behalf of the regulator, but what I can say is so uh, I did see, see in one of the financial reports that a very large reinsurer um, based in Switzerland, um, it's, it's public information, so I can share this. They actually take this, they, they, they follow exactly the same thing in determining liquidity pools, but they've got liquidity pools, and what they do is they take it out of the solo insurance companies, and they actually establish liquidity pools in their various regions. So, so they, they've taken the approach, and they definitely understand the, the risk to them from a liquidity event, and they manage their liquidity buffers at a regional level, so... So I do think it's the right approach. But usually the regulator is concerned, firstly, with the solar entities having adequate protection for its policyholders, and then secondly, from a group point of view. Okay. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Herman. Okay. Thank you.